The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow our Facebook page and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, thank you. It's a privilege to be back with you. And I must say that I appreciate the uh, pastoral prayer and the emphasis as I was listening and praying along. I was thinking, well, I think we ought to just go right to the Lord's Supper after such a uh, well-done prayer. For those who don't know me, uh, again, my name is Chuck Elliott. I'm the executive director for Ministry to State which is the part of the Presbyterian Church in America that reaches out to people in government. And you might have some appreciation for what that is, especially if some of you are connected in one way or the other to our federal government. Uh, We do work on, of course, uh, in Washington, D.C. in terms of Capitol Hill. Sometimes we will work uh, with those in the administration in different uh, agencies. Uh, We also have teams of those who work in state capitals, and we do some work in the international theater as well. Uh, it is a, uh, a ministry that is very much centered upon the individual, not so much the politics. In fact, we don't really deal with the political side of the equation. We do specifically go into offices and uh, government workplaces for the specific purpose of taking the gospel there. This morning, we're going to be looking, as you already know, at Psalm 57. I think that uh, there are a lot of things here that are important for us to understand as believers. Uh, I do want to say before I read it that it's no small thing for you to be here today and to enter in this time of worship. I don't necessarily understand or uh, know your circumstances specifically. I suspect that most of you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ. You've come to that point in your life where you've surrendered your life to him. There may be some here who are friends or your family members of those who have placed placed their faith in Christ and you're just trying to figure out some of these things. Uh, Regardless of where you are, it's significant that you would have interest in this time of worship and spending time in the word of God. And so I hope that today, as you leave, that you'll be encouraged in your relationship with Christ. You'll be encouraged by the scriptures. Again, this morning, Psalm 57 begins with, for the director of music to the tune of Do Not Destroy, of David, when he had fled, and please note this next line, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Verse 1 Have mercy on me, my God, have mercy on me, for in you I take refuge. I will take refuge in the shadow of your wings till the disaster has passed. I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. He sends from heaven and saves me. He rebuking those who wholly pursue, hotly pursue me. God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. I am in the midst of lions. I am forced to dwell among ravenous beasts, men whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. 
Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They spread a net for my feet. I was bowed down in distress. They dug a pit in my path, but they have fallen into it themselves. My heart, O God, is steadfast. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make music. Awake, my soul, awake. Awake, harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. I will sing of you among the peoples. For great is your love, reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, you have spoken to us. Uh, it is not lost on us that what we have just read, what we have just listened to, has been penned under the inspiration of your Holy Spirit some, roughly speaking, 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, and here today, in a very different environment, different times, you are speaking to us through what happened long ago. I pray that your Holy Spirit that inspired these words now will work in each of our lives, that you will speak to us about the truth and that you will enable us to understand more about ourselves and about how you work in our lives. We ask and pray these things for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I believe that the scriptures constantly are speaking to us about our relationship with God, what that, how that should be defined. I believe that as it speaks to us about that definition, it also is reminding us about who we are and the circumstances in which we live. Here we have, in essence, the words of David, yes, true scripture, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but yet it was in his life, so to speak, under his circumstances, the thing that he was experiencing, that he has provided for us a window into what it takes for us to live through times that are often challenging. When you think about the Psalms, and I know that you've been studying them, Charlie mentioned that you're in a series on the Psalms, and I was careful to make sure that I wasn't doing a psalm that he was going to do or one that he already had done. But you'll notice as you go through the psalms that it is a reminder to us about a certain genre of the way in which God does speak to his people. And that's really, that's really important. It's important for us to note the way in which God ministers to us through others, and, this, and in this particular case, through the life times of David. But I noticed this morning when I came into the sanctuary, as you were preparing for worship, that you weren't all just sitting here, quiet, still. You could have been. That would have been fine. But I noticed there was a bit of a hum, a buzz, so to speak. I noticed people were speaking to each other. You were greeting friends, people that maybe you hadn't seen for a week or maybe a month or maybe longer or whatever, but you were 
you are clearly demonstrating that relationships mean something to you. And the scriptures speak to us through relationships. They speak to us through people who understand families, understand marriage, have gone through them. Sometimes bad times, sometimes times of rejoicing. But nevertheless, real people, real time, real places, real circumstances. So that when you open up the scriptures, you're not opening up like a textbook that's giving you all these specific facts and details, but you're, you're given stories, real stories, people in real time, real, real places. These are the means that God uses to speak to us. And so when we look at his word, when we take his word, and we, like we did this morning, and we use it as a means of praying, it's a great tool for us to understand better who our God is and who we are and how we are to respond to these circumstances. The Psalms, as you understand, I think I'm sure that Charlie is going over these things, so forgive me for being somewhat redundant, but the Psalms themselves mean songs. It's taken from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. You know that there's 150 of them, and the longest one is Psalm 119. And there are those friends, and maybe you have friends as well, who have memorized large portions of the Psalms, and it just stays within their heart so that when they're out running or taking a long walk or they're just kind of quiet, or maybe they're in the dentist chair and the drill is going and they're kind of nervous, you know, and they're thinking, Psalm, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, you know, get me through this, this dental deal thing, or whatever the case may be, Right? They, they relate to, we relate to them very well because they, they speak to us about our lives and the things that we have been going through. David is by far the most frequent-sighted author of the Psalms. And we find that there are others like Moses or Solomon that are peppered through the Psalms as well. But David is the main one. And so often we're told about the author of the Psalms, the historical setting, like in this particular case, uh, the, the, the emphasis that it gives within the, the worship and the particular genre, perhaps. And so we learn all these different things. And of course, in the Psalms, we're not only provided an insight into what life should be like or how we should respond to different parts of life, but we're very much instructed in terms of who our God is. And those are the things, some of those things we're going to accent today as we go through this particular psalm, Psalm 57. It is what I'm going to call this morning a survival formula. It gives us this formula for going through difficult times. And let me just say this, maybe today as you sit here, this is one of the best times in your life. I mean, you, you're healthy, uh, circumstances have really gone well for you. You know, financially, it's great. You're, you're, you love your job, your family, your, your marriage, whatever those, whatever those parts of your life are, they're really going well. And so the idea that I would talk about or we would accent Psalm 57 that would talk about the, the, the formula of going through difficult times, you're like, I don't even relate to that because my life is going so well. But maybe you're on the other side of that equation. and Maybe things are really difficult and been trying and or maybe there's a storm coming and you see it and you're kind of wondering how you're going to go through it. But either way, regardless of who you are, where you are, I can assure you 
that this psalm will minister to you. And if you don't find yourself in, in need of the particulars of this formula, you certainly will need to know this formula as you minister and care for others. Because that's what it means for us to be part of the body of Christ that we would want to care for others. And there will be lots of people in our lives that are going through difficult times. So let's dig into it. The life of David. This particular psalm speaks about, as it says in the beginning, when he had fled from Saul into the cave. Now, you know a lot about David. Maybe, maybe you don't. Um, you know that he is frequently spoken of in the New Testament. In fact, we're told that some 58 times David is mentioned in the New Testament. That's really significant. But it makes sense when you understand the, the, the story, so to speak, of redemptive history. David is very much central. When the angel Gabriel is speaking to Mary in the beginning of the gospel, he specifically tells her that what is taking place now has a lot to do with what happened there, with what God said in terms of David. When you think about the building of the temple, or maybe the, the absence of the building, or the fact that the, the temple wasn't built in David's time, you think about the circumstances behind the fact that he was a warrior. And because he shed blood, God said, you're not going to be the one to build my temple, but your son will. We read the details of the division. We read all these kinds of things, but we know that fundamentally behind all of that is the story of a young man who was a shepherd, who was very earthy, who was agrarian. He spent time in the fields. He spent time with animals. He spent time protecting animals. He knew about sheep. He knew all their ways. And yet we're told that this boy, young, inexperienced, etc., in 1 Samuel chapter 16, it says, the youngest of eight brothers, so he had to navigate all that, he was brought up as a shepherd, and his reputation is reflected in the words when it says, I have seen a son of Jesse of Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well and is fine-looking. And the Lord, we're told in 1 Samuel 16, is with him. Those are all significant. And it is out of this background that David is summoned by Saul to be in his court as a musician. At first, it seems to go well, but Saul is not a healthy man. And it's really boggling in terms of just how healthy of a man Saul is, who is who is providing leadership for this, this very significant nation. And yet you know the rest of the details, how he is called in, uh, in, and he eventually takes on this great giant in battle. He defeats him. He is praised, which causes problems. He is placed in charge of a thousand Israelite soldiers. David, uh, extreme success, creates extreme jealousy in terms of Saul. And from that point on, Saul's life is really, I mean, David's life under Saul is really miserable. It's in times like this that we might ask the question, so what are your options 
when life turns sour, when you now are hated by the king of Israel, that you are pursued by the king of Israel, that, that the, those within his administration are pursuing you as well. They want you dead. They don't want you alive. And day in and day out, you are struggling with this hate. And you're hiding and you're in caves and you're going from one place to the other. And life is really miserable. And so maybe I should ask and just stop this morning. Is there such a, is there a saw in your life? in some way, shape, or form. Maybe it's not a real person. Maybe it's an issue. But it just dogs you. You get up in the morning, and all you think about, the first thing you think about is your soul. This, this part of life that is dogging you, that is pursuing you. And it's just making life miserable. So how do you handle it? Do you just suppress it? Do you find it to be just a constant source of fear? of anger perhaps, maybe even bitterness, and the list goes on. But there are unhealthy ways of us dealing with these difficult and trying times. And it is really critical for us who have been embraced by Christ, embraced by the gospel, to understand, again, this formula of going through difficult times. But here's the first thing you should realize and you should understand. As you we're listening to the passage. I suspect you saw at least three different categories. The first category is the circumstances that, that David is speaking from, speaking out of. The second, of course, is his theology. And then the last is, I'll call it his application. But this first one, in terms of his circumstances, it's difficult. In verse 3, he's hotly pursued. In verse 4, in the midst of lions. Ravenous beasts, men whose teeth and spears or arrows, tongues are sharp swords. He's speaking about things that are said about him that are, that are only for the purpose of his destruction, nothing else. He is bowed down in verse 5 in distress. He is a most miserable man. Maybe he resembles more of a Job. We think about others in the scriptures. And Saul, this king of Israel, again, not a foreign king. This is the family of God. That's what makes it so difficult. That's what makes this, the story so odd in a way, is that it's the family, the very family of God that is making life miserable for someone else. And let me say this. I know, especially having been in the pastorate for some 24 years before I entered into the ministry with the, the Presbyterian Church of America under Mission in North America, that's called Ministry to State. Before all that, being in the pastorate, I know how difficult the church can be, how the body of Christ can be. And so for David, that had to be very depressing. That it's not some foreign group king, but it's his own king. How difficult that had to be. And so I think what he says in verse 2 is so significant that he has come, that is David, has come to the end. There's just like, there's no logic, there's no reason that he can bring to the table that somehow brings some comfort or encouragement. 
And so what he does in verse 2, he says, I cry out to God most high, to God who vindicates me. Now I want you to think about someone crying out and what it takes to get to that point where you have nothing left except to in the, the strongest, loudest voice that you can muster, you cry out to God. Now, I would say, to some degree, that's a fairly unusual circumstances for us. I'll never forget when we were living in Oklahoma City, where I pastored a church for some 20 years there. Our oldest son, Philip, uh, was diagnosed with pneumonia. It was something that was ha happening quick, and he went into the hospital, and, and uh, we're very thankful to the Lord that he did find, that he got through that period, but I'll never forget sitting outside his room this one evening, and it was maybe 11, could have been 12 o'clock. It was fairly quiet for a hospital, you might say, and all of a sudden, piercing, in a sense, through that night was the cry of a woman. I'll never forget just how horrible it made me feel to hear this woman cry, just cry out. And apparently her infant child had died. And in response, she could only cry out in anguish and hurt and pain and sorrow for the, because of the death of her child. It takes that kind of, of energy, so to speak. And when you come to the point in your life where maybe you don't even physically cry out to God, but you are crying out to God. You are at your end. It is the most humiliating time because you've realized that all of your resources, all of your logic, all of the things that you can bring to the table to somehow resolve the issues that are haunting you, the souls in your life, that the only thing you can do is go before God and say, I am, I'm helpless. And I would say that there have been times, like certain times, where I have felt the need to simply give in and cry out to God. And this, this may sound kind of wimpy to you, but I'll share it anyway. It was about a year ago, I had an appointment. So we live in Washington. We live in a place called Adams Morgan. And the way I travel within the city is through the metro, walking the metro. And, and uh, I've been doing that for almost 20 years. And I had an appointment with a U.S. Senator. It was just going to be the two of us. We were going to have this meeting. And so to me, it was, very, it was very important. It was a very important part of the ministry. And because of the way things worked, I had, a, I had like an extra hour to, to, to utilize, so to speak, to get there. And so I know what it takes. I've done it again for a long time. And I'm down in the metro. And you all understand how the metro system can work and not work. And I'm down in there, and I'm, and I'm waiting for the train, and all of a sudden I realize I'm looking at the board that they're late, they're delayed. But it doesn't matter because I've given myself like an hour extra time. And then normally it takes me maybe 30 minutes, so I've got plenty of time. But what I didn't realize is that the delays were such where when the train eventually came and the doors opened up, it was so incredibly packed, it was literally impossible for me to try to push my way into it. And I thought, okay, not a problem because there'll be another train and I'll just wait. And the next train came and it was the same way. 
And all of a sudden, I realized that I cannot take the metro over to Capitol Hill. I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to get out of the metro and find myself a Uber, right? So I go up. I go up to the street and I, you know, punch in for the Uber. And the Uber driver somehow mismanages the deal, and he's way down in like Dupont Circle, and he doesn't—he doesn't have any idea where I am, and the traffic is crazy. And next thing I know, I can't use the Uber. So the third option is to call my wife, Debbie. I can't get—I I can't find my my way over. I said I'm going to need you. She wouldn't answer. She was busy, which is understandable. And then the other option I had was the taxi. And so a taxi would come by, it'd be full. Next taxi came by, it would be full. And I'm like, again, forgive me for going through all these details. You don't need to know all this, ex except for the fact that finally I'm looking at my, my, the time and I realize that if I don't get into a taxi right now, I'll never get over there and I'll miss this meeting. And to me, it was really important. And so literally in my soul, and I, I don't think I, I, I yelled out, but... I just said, God, I cannot make this work. I am so incredibly frustrated that every means that normally works for me perfectly and gets me where I need to, it's not working. It's, God, I, I need your help. And literally, I found myself, as I finished my cry for help, my prayer, a taxi came by, and it stopped, and I got in, and eventually I got to the meeting. I was amazed. Now, I know that sounds whatever, but the point is, is that what would happen if normally in the course of time, we, we would get there quicker, so to speak, the crying out quicker than having to go through all those steps and frustration, that it would be a normal part of our lives to say, Lord, you know, I know that I think I, I have the, the right answer to this, or I know the right way, but, but just in humility, as we get up in the morning, we cry out to God, Lord, I need your help to get through this day. I don't know what's going to come my way. And even if it all comes as I might expect, I am totally dependent upon you. And that's what David is saying here. And let me tell you this. When you, as a believer, function in your family, in your church life, in your workplace, as a mother, as a father, as a grandfather, as a grandmother, as a grandchild, no matter who you are, no matter where you are in life, but you function in life as someone who is totally dependent on God, it will make a very big difference in those relationships. And I, I struggle because tomorrow I'll get up and I'll kind of make my own way and I'll begin things according to the thing, to the, to the history and to my wisdom, so to speak, and all these other things that I kind of put on the table to get me through the day, when really it ought to start with crying out. I cry out to God Most High who vindicates me. Secondly, secondly, it's clear here that David's theology is rich and meaty. Not needy, meaty. It's, it's, he really has an understanding of God. And I doubt if he had all the 
commentaries, the Calvin's commentaries and the Van Til's and all the other kinds of things out there that the theological students have today. He didn't have any of that. He had the Pentateuch. And he didn't have the Psalms, right? There was so much that he did not have, but his theology is really quite rich. And so what is, what is so amazing to me to read is as he is praying, as he is crying out to God, he speaks about these different aspects of God's character. He knows God well. Debbie and I have reached, some of you will appreciate this, what we refer to as our 50-70 window. You know what that is, right? 50-70 window. 50-70 window means that we've been married 50 years and we're hitting 70 years of age. And I must admit that it really does change your perspective in terms of time. And when you read the scriptures, you, you're you're confronted with, you know, these people who lived there for, I mean, lived in a certain place for 40 years, and then they did this kind of a thing. And yeah, I, I, I can, I, I have an appreciation for that type of thing. But being married to, to Debbie for 50 years and having known her longer than that, I can tell you that I know her pretty well, and she knows me pretty well. And, you know, it's the type of thing where you can almost, if you don't, you know, complete sentences, you know in the morning when she's at the breakfast table, you know, if she's doing well or if she's not doing well. You know her, you know, you know so much about her, right? And it makes such a difference in terms of our relationship. And the scriptures are constantly instructing us as God's people to know God well. And so when you go through this psalm and you read like in verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, you know that David, as he is thinking about God, he understands the mercy of God. He understands that God is one who, yes, he is just, but he can, he can appeal to God's grace and his kindness. And of course, he does throughout this passage. He speaks about, for example, uh, as, we, as he unveils his knowledge of God in verse 3, he sends from heaven and saves me, rebuking those who hotly pursue me, God sends forth his love and his faithfulness. This agape love, this love that is not based on what you did or what you have not done, it is based on the nature of God. The way God treats us is based on his faithfulness, meaning that he is never unfaithful. He is a covenant-keeping God, one who makes a promise, and he never, he never, he never reverses that commitment. And we see that all through the scriptures. And David here is constantly reminding us as we read through the psalm about his knowledge of God, his theology. So what does it mean for you to believe and to, to place your, your faith, your trust in a God who is always faithful? What does it mean for you to understand even a glimpse of God's love? Like, for example, what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, for this reason, in verse 14, I kneel before the Father 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the, the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide, long, high, deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Do you have that kind of understanding of God's love as David did clearly in Psalm 57? Do you understand that when we talk about the faithfulness of God, we're talking about his sovereignty? We're talking about the fact that God is in control of every aspect of your life. And so that when these difficult times come, when David, when David is experiencing this hate from Saul, that he understands that this is not just some kind of time where God is too busy to keep things going properly. He knows that there's some purpose in all this. But he never loses his appreciation for the nature of God. Thirdly, David speaks about worship, or maybe I'll call it the application, as he thinks about the way in which God works in his life, as we think about the ways in which God works in our lives, it is important that all of it, all of it brings us to a time, maybe at some occasions a moment, maybe longer, but of just being quiet and still and worshiping God. Awake, in verse 8, Awake, harp and lyre, I will awake in the dawn. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. Now notice the accent here, that one, when he talks about praising God, he is talking about speaking well of God. You know what it's like to be in someone's presence who is telling you about some relationship, some person, maybe it's their Husband, maybe it's their wife, maybe it's their children. But they're speaking well of them. That's another form of saying they are praising them. I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. So in the midst of all the, you might say, all the garbage that is coming upon this man, he wants to exalt God. Is that true for you? I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. And by the way, in the uh, in the scriptures, whenever you see the word Lord, you know, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, it is speaking about the Hebrew word of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God. Among the nations, he says, so it's not just private, but he's an evangelist. He is telling those in his workplace, so to speak. Uh, the people who are in charge of him, the people who are under him. He is talking about, perhaps, you might say in our context, family members, distant relatives, neighbors, etc. And as we go about our lives, we want them to understand that we are someone who worships God because of what God, because of who he is and what he is doing 
in our lives, even if, even if it's under circumstances that are difficult. In verse 10, for great is your love reaching to the heavens. Your faithfulness reaches to the skies. Be exalted, O God, above, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Worship is a major theme in David's life. There is a man presently, as we speak, as we worship here this morning, who is in jail in Shawnee, Oklahoma. Maybe, maybe by now he's been released. I don't think so. I'll just quickly tell you his story. His name is Paul. His wife's name is Candy. They're from China. Mainly in China, he was involved in pastoring there and placed in prison because of his faith, because of his work pastoring a church. I don't know all the... I don't know all the time, the particular points in time when he did certain things. I just know that, that uh, a mutual friend told me about his time in China. But eventually, he left and came to the States, ended up in California with his wife, and I think they have two children. And he decided that for a season in his life, he needed to support his family financially with, with work as a trucker driving a big rig, 18-wheeler, across the country, back and forth. About three, three and a half months ago, he was coming back on a drive through Oklahoma on Route 40. And I know, I know exactly where this area is. It's just about a 45-minute drive from Oklahoma City where we used to live. And as he was coming west, there was a tow truck driver apparently working on some car on the side, and allegedly, or what has been reported, is he hit that man, but he didn't know it. Or at least, that's what we're told. But he killed the man. He kept going, but again, it's under... What, we're, what was told is that he didn't quite understand or didn't know what, what had happened. Eventually, he was arrested, placed in jail, and now he's being charged. He owns, he owns the fact that he was involved in this horrible circumstances, that he's responsible for the death of this man. And really, if you think about it, his life is really messed up big time. Every once in a while, he'll write a letter. And I have part of it here in front of me, and I'm going to read to you. Because the letter here described how he is thinking and responding to his circumstances. Again, it's not like these things just happened to him. He understands that he was re responsible. At the same time, I tend to think that he, he didn't know what had taken place. But in, regardless, here's what he says. In prison, all I can do now is read the Bible, exercise, Prepare myself to be used by the Lord again. I strive to live in harmony with everyone in, in the prison. Now, you need, this is not a prison. I'm sorry. This is jail. A jail is different than a prison. A jail is where you're held before you're placed on trial. And so you're in, you're, you're in an environment where, you're very, where you have other men, in his case, around him all the time. It's not like you just got your, you have your own cell. He says, 
I strive to live in harmony with everyone and help others as much as possible. I share food and daily necessities with those in need and those who show good behavior. And apparently, it's, 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 a, it's a bit of an issue to even have proper food in this jail there in Oklahoma, there in Shawnee, Oklahoma. So he's trying to help these people. He says, uh, I share food daily uh, and, and other necessities with those in need and those who show good behavior. Currently, I share a room with two young men. One is 18, the other one is 20, and I share the gospel with them. And now we study the Bible together every night. He prays with them. He leads them in worship. And it's likely that he may spend a long time in prison. But he's not allowing his circumstances to dictate his response. And again, I'm not ignoring the fact that he's involved, he was involved in, in a very, very tragic uh, set of circumstances. But what he is doing is that he's like David, he's using these very difficult circumstances to place his focus not upon himself or maybe the temptation to be bitter and angry, even with himself. Maybe he could be with the system or whatever, but instead his focus is upon his God. And as he worships his God as he accents the nature of God. He's interested in bringing others along in this worship and helping them in their time of difficulty. And my prayer for us as a church, for us as Christians, who again are in families, maybe there are family members who don't know the Lord, who aren't trusting him, or maybe they are. Maybe it's a spouse, or maybe it's children, or maybe it's a parent, or maybe it's our workplace, or where we work out, or wherever it may be. We're involved in a community, and that community will benefit from our understanding of Psalm 57, or they will not. And my prayer is that they will. Will you pray with me? Father in heaven, help us to appreciate what David has been through and and to benefit from these words that have been given to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. As we now enter a season within our worship where we celebrate the supper, the Lord's Supper, I pray, Father, that the words here in Psalm 57 will continue to burn within our hearts, that we will reflect upon them and utilize them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.